Crest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. Got a great show for you guys today. I'm excited about it. I don't know what it is. I have no idea what's going on. I showed you a few photos before, though. Yeah, but I don't remember. Give you a little tease Yeah, what we're talking about. I'm getting old in my senility. That was yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like I said, yesterday was a frustrating day. As everybody learned on the podcast last week, it was a frustrating experience. Yes. What? Regardless, I have an awesome story that is close to home for Chris and I, literally. All right. But before we dig into that, let's take a moment to talk about Petrol Box. And before I get into the ad, I realized that the more, every month that goes by and we get a new t-shirt, I am more and more likely to be wearing the same outfit as both you and my dad. Because I got my dad a Petrol Box yeah. prescription at prescription, not drug. Yeah, well, Although it's kind maybe. of a cool drug. Mm-hmm. Cars are kind subscription. of Subscription. Um, and he comes over the other day. He's like, oh. I'm wearing that T-shirt under my other shirt here right now. I don't know. I'm wearing a shirt that you don't like today. It's the one that says, I don't care how they do it in California. I don't mind the shirt. It just looks like a 1980s baseball T-shirt. Well, yeah, that's the point. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, Petrobox is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiasts. Each month, they carefully select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications, all that sent right to your doorstep. It's kind of a curated selection of the latest and greatest gear in the industry. And there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. As you know, the Petrobox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. So check them out at mypetrolbox.com and be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month's order. All right. So I'm ready. Chris, as our listeners know, I like to dig into obscure automotive history. And every now and again, I stumble upon some local history here in the Twin Cities. So I'm going to tell Which you about- Which is like a, an underrated car place. And I'll tell you why. Car place. It could have been the Mecca. Well, it's kind of, there's some ways, like Back to the 50s is the biggest right. car show in the world. Yes, it is. And it, in the world. I have a story about Back to the 50s that we'll get to with this. Do you know why it's they stopped? They used to like advance the date every year. Oh, I didn't know that. Know, just to move it up no, so they would let always... more cars in. And then it stopped in like 63. Okay. So, oh, I see what you're saying. The, the requirement, the cutoff date. Yeah, it changed. I gotcha. It I think about the date of the event. It's always on Father's Day. Father's yes. Day weekend. No, no, they changed it so now that the uh, the only car that doesn't still doesn't get in is the Mustang. Exactly, the Mustang. Yeah. So the get cutoff in. is 1964, and yeah. the first Mustang was 64 and a half. Yep. And they are sure to make sure of that distinction. Yeah, they, they make sure you know. So anytime you're hanging out, there's no Mustangs no, anywhere. Exactly. And it's got to be this huge spite thing, right? It must just be this giant. No, FU. it's it's that like that's when culture shifted it's from it. the pony cars. Yep. Right, and everything previous to that was like more the hot rods, 50s, street rods, et cetera. The 50s kind of dribbled on into the early 60s. That that whole genre, the look, et cetera. Right. So, yeah, you know what's interesting? The 64 C10 we have, or I have, would make it into back to the 50s. Yeah, when did it start, that chassis start being manufactured, though? 62. Okay, well, that's why. It's when it started. No, it's not. It is the year of the vehicles, my oh, understanding. Really? So yeah. if your car was- so It's you not like s- the, the BMW thing where it's like, ah, oh, if it's an E30, you're in. Oh. No, I believe it is the date manufactured. Come on. Got, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure you could lie in there. I can look up the VIN. Right. Yeah, they're checking VIN numbers as you go in yeah, and exactly. send you on your way. <laughs> no, but we should put some lawn chairs in the back in the 64 and go cruise around back to the 50s yes. this year I think next. it's the third weekend in June. 
Something like that. That sounds Whenever about Father's right. Day is. And yep. if anybody around the country wants to come see just like the most incredible display it is of all the cars. the biggest car show in the world. In the world, you guys. It's the entire state I should have looked up how many cars they get every year. It's like 10,000 cars or it's, something like Yeah, that. more than that, I think. Yeah, I think it's, it's like 15,000 cars. Very cool. So you know what's a bummer, though? What's that? Is you remember University and Porky's? Yeah, we used Porky's as a drive-in, right? It's kind of like the. It typical, was iconic because it's it's been around since the fifties. Yeah, it's like the it's like the milkshake place, right? It's the, it's the <laughs> with the big neon sign with the pig. You it's, could go there. And, it is iconic in, in that it is the basic um, drive-in place from uh, American Graffiti, which yeah, is the classic movie totally set yeah. in the fifties, yep. which you sixties actually, which you've never seen and yep. don't care to see it yeah. at all. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you about the long forgotten story of that was, that's gone. Porky's Universe, is gone. Porky's is gone. Yes. They they put a retire. That's what they did. Here's what they did. Everybody that hung out at Back to the Fifties got old, and they just built a retirement home is for them. Actually, a retirement home there. It is. That's it really is like ironic. A, a nursing home type type situation. Yeah. Now but you know the Porky's. the motorplex, the big like fancy car garages for yeah, all the car guys that have sign. too much money. Yeah. yeah, they actually took part of it and put it in their garage, which is kind of cool. I guess. Yeah, if you can afford that, I think they auctioned it off or something like that. I'm sure. But then they university did. was the road. Yeah, that, that was used the to main track. You could go hang university. out. Yeah. We would go there on Friday nights. You had the Euro lot. Yep. We, you, each kind of demographic of car would have its own little thing, right? It would yeah, have its own. Yeah, it was own, great because then you could just the hop lot. around. The yep. checker lot is where we would hang well, out. Well, and then didn't it also change to like the Chinese restaurant? Kung Pao Chicken, or not Kung Pao Chicken. What was the name? <laughs> of, that's, a, that's a type of. <laughs> it was, that's not a restaurant. Yes, that is there a dish. Was like a, there was like a, a Chinese food place or something. Oh, good times. That we had there. And then. Everybody that was eating there, we eventually stopped because everybody started finding steel wool in their food. And then they got Wait, a, they what? got like a, yeah, there was like you would be eating your food and be like, how was that? And you'd pull steel wool and like from scrubby brushes out of your food. <laughs> and then they went and had a health inspection and they failed yeah. miserably like cockroaches all over the place. Oh. And we're like, ooh, maybe oh, not. we ate there yeah. for a long ooh. time. Yeah, but I didn't because I'm super picky with food. So I never ate any steel wool with cockroach meals. Well, that's good. All right, all right, back to our story, Chris. That's sad though. It is sad. It's sad that there's no real cruising thing anymore. I know. It was such like a, a hub that had been it going was. on for decades and yes. decades, and now it's gone. And it really, I really do think, Yeah. and the car culture here in Minneapolis isn't quite what it used to be, or the Euro, the Euro scene, the hot rod scene. There's guys all over the place. They're still doing things. Right, but there's no central. It was every week, Friday night, we would get, like me and the guys would go out, park our lawn chairs, and yeah. hang out. <laughs> and that's, and it was awesome. And I feel like the entire culture lost something. When that disappeared. For anybody that's in California, it's like our Van Nuys is oh, is yeah, okay. yeah, is our University Avenue. Yeah, and it's and it's gone. Was, Milwaukee has Highway 100. Our University Avenue. You know, there's a, every big place has a, a place like this, and now we don't. It sucks. I know. Rest that's in progress. Peace, university. Yeah, progress. Yeah. Well, let me tell you about this progress right. from the 1920s. Uh, I'm going to tell you about the long forgotten story of the Twin Cities Motor Speedway. Okay. It was going to be one of the greatest racetracks in the country designed to rival the Indianapolis Speedway right here in our backyard. But as with all when these stories- When was the Indianapolis Motor Speedway uh, conceived? I will tell you that. Okay. Right after this, actually. Okay. Um, but with all these stories, we got to get back to- the start of everything. We can't get ahead of ourselves. So from the first appearance, horseless carriages were heralded as being better than a horse and faster 
Chris. And interestingly enough, it was doctors that were some of the first proponents for these newfangled vehicles, which I personally really like the idea of, seeing as how my wife's a physician and is a true car enthusiast. It makes me think that I'm married to like kind of a long line of doctor petrol heads, right? Sure, sure. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it, because these early cars weren't cheap, so certainly not everyone could afford them. Right, you had to be a physician or some sort of engineer, architect, something or another. But it wasn't just a status symbol. Imagine healthcare at the turn of the 20th century, especially in rural Minnesota. You didn't have a bunch of well-staffed neighborhood clinics everywhere. No, instead, you have a few doctors that would make house calls all over the countryside. With their little leather bag yes, they had. Yes, in a journey usually taking hours to get there. So hopefully your ailment wasn't that yeah, bad. It was, it's not like you're dialing 911. Yeah, there was no emergency rooms yeah. either. So the American Medical Journal, which is a publication that still exists and is in circulation today and still disgusts me every single month, Chris, when it shows up in our mailbox. It some disgusts horrendous you? ailment pictured on the cover oh, every month, right? And I bet your wife is like, oh, look at this. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, basically. Uh, it's always pus. It's like yellow pus coming out of some orifice. I'm oh. like, why would you put this on the cover of a magazine? Because well, I'm sure if that's compl- your interest, they're like, desensitized they're like to it. ooh. What is this? <laughs> what infection have we here? Exactly. Yeah, it looks like Cletus got kicked in the face by a horse again. That was like one of the first <laughs> way what? back in the day. Oh, Wait, that's that what was, it was. Yeah, that was from, yeah, it was just like a horseshoe-shaped thing with pus yeah, coming out of it. Obviously, that's terrible. So the that's American such a terrible word. What pus? pus? Yeah, it's like it's, it's. You know what it is? It's an onomatopoeia. It's like pop or bang. Oh, no, dude. No, no, no. Anyways, the American Medical Journal raised the topic of the automobile way back in 1906. It questioned readers about the merits of the automobile versus the horse. Almost all of the 68 respondents that wrote in favored the automobile. Dr. C.E. Rogers of Montevideo recommended a car of at least 12 horsepower and a top speed of 40 miles per hour, which makes for an incredible pace for rutted money country roads. Do you think anybody back then grabbed like, like three horses and on a, put them on a carriage and called it the three horsepower carriage? Or if his buddy got a car and had 12 horses, he put 13 horses on his thing, <laughs> just like, the, like keeping up with the Joneses kind of type of deal? Well, they did race them back to back, which I'll get to in a minute. Nice. So uh, that was Dr. C.E. Rogers, Dr. F.E. Dagnow of Austin. Why has everyone got two initials and then their name? I don't know. That's just how it was. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, uh, Dr. F.E. Dagnow of Austin wrote that he was wasting too much time on the road with his horse and buggy. He dispensed with his rig and bought an auto in 1903. And another physician, an early automobile enthusiast, Dr. Charles E. Dutton of Minneapolis, would soon play a much larger role in automotive history. So although doctors were many of the first adapters of new automobiles, it didn't take long for society as a whole to become enamored with these newfangled contraptions. And as much of a practical invention as cars were, they were also somewhat of a spectacle, as you can imagine, especially when you're racing at speed. Imagine, if you will, you're used to seeing horses trotting along relatively quietly at a leisurely pace. You know what's kind of funny is that a horse kind of makes the same sound as a Harley. <laughs> like, so clump, 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 yeah, clump, like, clump, clump. At a they're, gallop? What if they're idling and they just sit there and just trot in pace? <laughs> like, that's that's the idle, right? Yeah, exactly. Just like stamping up and down. Yeah. <laughs> but when they're at a gallop, it sounds just like that. It's like... Yeah, exactly. So what's interesting to think about, though, Chris... 
that trotting along of a horse, that's the norm for thousands of years. Yeah. Then all of a sudden these noisy rattling Can you imagine death the first traps. guy that saw a horse and was like, I'm going to ride that thing. <laughs> I'm getting on that thing. It's probably the same thing he thought when first time he saw a woman too. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so you have horses and then you have these noisy rattling death traps starting to become more commonplace. And more than that, they started to become faster, much faster. As such, auto racing became a huge attraction for towns all over the country with dirt circle tracks popping up for the singular use of selling tickets to the spectacle of auto racing. Or, in many cases, horse racing tracks would simply be used to race cars, sometimes against the very horses themselves. Which, fun fact, Chris, in the equestrian world, you've probably heard of the term quarter horse, right? Uh, no, I have the not. A quarter horse is no. a, like a breed or a type of horse. Well, quarter horses it? are bred to race in quarter mile races. Okay. So they're more of like a sprint racing horse. Sure. And so the first quarter mile drag races were actually held with cars racing against these specially bred racing horses. So this is where the quarter mile comes from. Exactly. This is the origin of why yes, we do it, it in a quarter mile. And in the beginning, the horses would always win. Well, yeah, I would think so. It's these little pop, 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 just... What an awesome time that must have been to be the guy. What's a quarter mile time of a horse? I have no idea. How did you not look this up well, immediately? I, I don't know. I'm not thinking. All right, I've got to find <laughs> it. Look at what the quarter mile time of a horse is. While you do that, I want all our listeners to imagine that you're the guy racing his car, just tinkering away in your little shed out back, trying new, never thought of methods to like squeeze out a little more power and more speed to try to beat the horse. Do you know what a, a quarter mile is? Is two furlongs. Oh. It's two furlongs. So the, the highest race speed ever recorded over two furlongs is. Is this from a standing start? I assume. And what, uh, probably, yeah, okay. it's just, this okay. is a horse race. What do you think his top speed was? Top speed? Yeah, top speed of this horse. His name was, uh, maybe does it winning a brew Ooh. in- uh, Can a horse date? do 40? Oh, it was in 2008. Oh, so a recent Yeah, this is 2008. So it's got all the good, uh, it's been it's, it's been it's juiced. got the breed. <laughs> juiced, yeah, well, it's got the breeding going on. It, it definitely, I'm gonna say, I knowing nothing about horse speeds, 40 miles an hour. 44 okay. miles per hour and at 20.5 seconds. Okay. So that's technically faster than some cars I've owned. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> For sure. So imagine you're this guy who's just tinkering away. Yeah, I'm going to go to try bump up the compression to beat Seabiscuit this weekend. Nothing? I'm sorry. I'm no so joke. Really, you're supposed to laugh. There. I'm sorry. I, be, I was, I was I reading about the win, I was reading about the winning brew. It's a two-year-old <laughs> Philly thoroughbred. Did he race against hor any cars? Well, no, not no, in 2000. In 2008, no. no. Just, it's probably no, going to That would have been a yeah. That would have yeah, been a horse race. What a Tesla Model S. So, seeing the public interest in such events, the Minnesota State Fair Board went to sponsor its first auto race in 1907 using the existing dirt oval track used for horse racing. Which, fun fact, this is the same track that existed at the fairgrounds up until 2002. This racetrack that you're talking yes. about. The dirt track this was is originally- This the one you sent me a picture of? No. Oh, okay. Just wait for that one. Okay. The dirt track was originally a one-mile oval, which was reconfigured in 1939 to be a half-mile oval, and was finally paved in the 50s in its heyday, which would attract the who's who of NASCAR racing, right, in the Minnesota State Fair. And I didn't even realize they completely removed the track in 2002, if you go to the fairgrounds, which is 
sort of sad. And I actually remember being a kid walking the high banking of that track with my dad. So he was big into hot rods when I was growing up and we'd always go to the swap meet at back to the fifties, just held on the old racetrack there. And as I was writing this story, I was reminded of one memory in particular. I must've been super young, maybe four or five, walking around, looking at all the car parts and miscellaneous junk How that tall people you had. How four years old? About the same height. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what I was gonna get at. Yeah, yeah. I peaked early. <laughs> no, but I imagine, or I remember walking around, I was young, looking at all the car parts and just junk that people have. Yeah, but it's all like, out on tables. Yeah, there's all these like little mini bikes and sometimes there's snowmobiles. Oh, yeah, and yeah just all it's kinds just of, miscellaneous yeah. junk. And some people just bring junk and yeah, nothing, yeah, no treasures, sure. right? And I am sitting and they there- bring the same junk every, every year. year. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm struggling to keep up with my dad on what seemed like an impossibly steep pavement because everything's banked. And I remember I had an old cast iron John Deere pedal tractor. I think my parents actually still have it up in the rafters and it's probably worth a ton of money at this point being a collector's item because it was old back then. Right. But regardless, I had this really cool pedal tractor and I really, I, I remember reading through all my like picture books and being a good Wisconsin boy. I knew a tractor was worthless if it didn't have a job to do, Chris. So <laughs> as we're walking around along all these vendor tables at the swap meet, I see one guy that had a small tined blade off of a big like farm implement or plow or a tiller or something. And it was only one of the individual like rake type attachments, right. of which I'm through. There was a whole lineup of the actual implement. But there it was, John Deere green, and in my mind, perfect for my little pedal tractor. <laughs> and I remember my dad asking about it and hearing it was probably like five bucks or something. And I think my dad made some remark like, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to it if it's still available. Now, either I didn't understand how commercial transactions worked at age four, or I was so enamored by my newfound John Deere implement that I didn't want to see it sold out from under us. And as we continued to walk along the line of vendors, my dad heard someone shouting after him, um, sir, as my dad looked back, here young Jake was dragging the tool behind me. <laughs> I remember my dad being embarrassed and you know, giving the guy five bucks for it. What I don't remember is if my dad had to carry the damned thing around for the rest of the day, but I imagine I mean, he yeah, did. Yeah, he definitely did. So that or has, if he was smart, he took it back to the truck. And exactly. Then, so that has nothing to do with the history of this track, but it was a fun little memory that came back to me yeah, for when sure. researching it. So, I love swap meets. I'd like to go to the Hershey swap meet in Pennsylvania. That would be very cool. Yeah, they have That's a, a Porsche-specific swap yeah, meet. They have, and a, it's they have other not Porsche-specific stuff there too. Oh, I imagine they do. I would love to. Oh, it's Volkswagen too, Volkswagen, okay. Porsche, that Beatles. That started yeah. mostly as like an air-cooled yeah, yeah. swap I would, I would like to go visit yeah. that. I you would. know what else would make for cool memories with your kids? I can think of many things, but yeah. Detailing. Ah. And Obert Car Care is your source My for kids professional detailing compounds and supplies. They always want to help. They're like, what? and I try to give them a job where they're not going to ruin anything. Like, <laughs> so you yeah. don't hand them with the big DA buffer yeah, and say, exactly. go to town, yeah. kiddo. Yeah, so Obert Car Care is where you should look to. They have detailing compounds and supplies that's research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. So they are the guys that are passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product. And they truly are great products. It's simple, foolproof two-step process. It's easy and gives an amazing finish. And right now they're offering a whopping 20% off your next order when you use the code Overcrest. I keep saying whopping, but 20% is a huge is discount yeah, for anything. The discount code is good not only on OberkCarCare.com, but also DetailedImage.com and CarSuppliesWarehouse.com. Basically, wherever you get your detailing supplies. So go check them out today. 
So what do you think the fastest a horse has ever run? <laughs> we got to move past the horse thing I just, soon. I know, sorry. The fastest it's ever run. So yeah. 44 was the best in a quarter. Yeah. And I have to imagine they get up to speed before the quarter. Yeah. So I'm going to say 50. 55. That thing could just go down the highway. For a little while till for, its heart for, explodes. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> exactly. That's impressive. All right. So in 1907, the Minnesota State Fair held a second annual auto race, this time being the premier attraction at the fair. Soon, the event was drawing famous drivers who fill out the race circuits. Auto racing was officially here to stay in Minnesota. Or so we thought. Yeah. What kind of cars are we having out there? It's uh, stock cars. Okay. Yep, stock racing cars. So what cars. would that have been at the time? Like Hudson Hornets? No, because this was back, this was up to the 50s. Okay. So it was like your Chevy, whatever the sedan was yep. that they raced in stock cars yep. and, you know, the Ford equivalent yep. and the actual, like NASCAR was a thing back then. Sure. Pretty big. So it was these Before big, it got ruined. I would right. like to see it go back Not to that formula. Not as commercial, yeah. right? Um, but it was like kind of these big celebrity drivers that would come to the state fair and race there. So seeking ever greater speeds, the racing I, I just want to say. This is still dirt track, mind okay, you. So let's say this is happening in the 30s, right? Yep. In the 30s, there's still horse-drawn carriages going through town. True. Okay, so you think of these cars being raced, and we kind of think of it as like this pedestrian thing. It happens all the time, car right. racing. It was still a this spectacle. Was, this was incredible. You know going what's to see cool this. about the cars back then, too? They really were true to the name stock cars. Sure, they might have welded in a roll bar, yeah. but these were cars that still came off the factory floor. Yeah, yeah it's completely different it's, than it it's is. It's like you would go home. Sure, you might see the horse-drawn carriage on your way through town with Farmer Bill on it, but you could go home to your driveway and see the exact same car that was out there racing. Farmer, you got to keep in mind, you got to think Minnesota, right? You got to think of Minnesota. There's a lot of Farmer Bills. There's a lot of Farmer Bills, and I'm guarantee you guys rode their horses to, to the, the race races to watch at the, the fair. car. Of course they it did. It would have been... An incredible scene, something that would have been really, really special. I wonder if you and could get we a, lose. We're losing. I think we're losing that because there's less the and less variety, right? Less and less special things happening. Like, yeah, yeah. Elon Musk sent a rocket to space, but I can't experience that. You're right. It's not like, as what is my, um, what is my experience? We have to like make our experiences for ourselves now. It's not like we can just go see something. You know, that would have been amazing to see this huge technological advancement. And all the technological advancement is made on, uh, you know. It's such transistors a, yeah. and, and silicon and silicone. I whatever. think that's why we should get our pilot's license, Chris. Oh my God. Both of us. Let's do it. No. Yes. No. I, I, <laughs> I'm kind of, I kind of mourn for myself a little bit that I don't get to have those grand experiences, those huge shifts in, in technology and advancement it all happened in yeah. the industri over the, the whole, industrial revolution. The whole 20th century was nuts. You think about from the invention of the automobile, seeing the horse and carriage was what it was to the end. We were on the moon. Imagine how special it is that we lived, maybe not you, because you're a little bit younger than me, but I went through high school, and when I was halfway through high school, the internet came out. Yeah. So I'm like the last generation that knows exactly what growing up with and without the you're digital right. age is like. You're right. It's a very, very unique perspective. It is, yeah. It's interesting to think about that. Um, so that was still dirt track we're talking about at the Minnesota State Fair. And seeking ever greater speeds, the racing world began experimenting with track surfaces other than dirt. So in Surrey, England, for example, Brooklands arose atop a reclaimed swamp in 1907. It's banked concrete driving surface supported by six inches of gravel and Portland cement. In Indianapolis, investors are also building a new hard surface track. 
But unfortunately, at its inaugural race in 1909 at Indianapolis, the crushed stone and tar material chosen to pave the famed Indianapolis track proved dangerous to drivers and spectators alike. Imagine being pelted with sharp rocks every time the racers went by the stands. Yeah, probably not good. No, that's why in 19... 19- was there a fence back? There probably was there, not. Oh, I'm sure no there way. was not a fence. No just, safety and fence. And it's not just like gravel or dirt tracks. This is sharp, yeah. concrete, like rock. It's crushed rock, crushed yes, stone. it yeah. is sharp and terrible. So that's why in 1911, when the track was repaved with 3.2 million paver bricks, the track earned its nickname, The, the Brickyard. Brickyard. Yeah. Exactly. So the Speedway hosted- Did its- we do an episode on The Brickyard? I feel I like we did. I think we did a short one. Yeah, I think yeah. we did something. Yeah, so The Brickyard Speedway hosted its first 500-mile race that year, a dramatic and highly successful venture, which saw winner Ray Horan pushing his Marmon Wasp to an average speed of 74 and a half miles per hour. So- 500 back then, it's way different for 500 now. If yeah. you could even, I think of it in terms of almost endurance racing Exactly. Back then. Now it's a piece of cake. Nobody breaks down. Right. See, dudes, these cars don't break down. They crash. They sure. blow out tires. But nobody's blowing up their engines or losing radiators. None even of that stuff Even if they do lose happens. a radiator, they have so many spares on hand, boom, you're right back out Yeah, there. but that would be interesting. It, it never happens. True. These, <laughs> things, these things do not break. Very rarely. It is not an endurance race anymore. I would like to see these NASCAR guys go 24 hours. Yeah. Well, that's why I do Let's think do they're, um, when they do call ro- them road circuits, I, them I, will, I will dial them up. I yeah, have, just I have tell their say personal Chris, number. Say Chris says, yeah, you, you guys, guys need to you do, gotta go 24 hours. You guys, you guys never call you know back what, on 24 the 24 hours can be boring too. You're not going to sit there in front of the whole thing. No, but you can check back in every once in a while. Yeah, but then you're going to miss the big thing that whatever you wanted to see happen. I think it would be just as interesting, which is not that interesting, <laughs> but for longer, but for a longer I time. I gotcha. Yeah. All right. Anyways, by 1914, the Indianapolis track was so successful that the track's founders were looking to build another track in a different city. With Minnesota's already burgeoning state fair race, it seemed like the perfect location. Enter Frank H. Wheeler. Born in Manchester, Hell of a name Iowa. for a car guy. Yeah. Born in Manchester, Iowa, not England. Oh, I was like, oh. <laughs> At the turn of the 20th century, he became a successful businessman as the principal owner of the Wheeler Shebler Carburetor Company. And later. What do they make carburetors for, I wonder? I don't know, Wheeler Shebler stuff. Okay. As well as later director of the Stutz Fire Engine Company. He became enamored with auto racing and together with three other partners invested his millions in the development of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. In 1914, Wheeler and his son took the train to Minneapolis to explore the possibilities for a track at that location. All kinds of stuff, Jake. What? The Ford Model A had a Wheeler oh, Chevrolet carburetor. This was like it. the carburetor. This is the carburetor. I gotcha. Yeah. I didn't know it by name. Yeah. You know, like Rochester and some other ones yeah. from back there, yeah. but that okay. So this guy did have he his was money. A, he was a dude. He was yes, a guy. Yes, he was. So there he linked up with none other than Dr. Charles Dutton, who we mentioned earlier in the story. Dr. Charles Dutton held impressive offices at the medical field as a practicing physician and head of head head of health commissioning in Minneapolis. However, while his profession may have been medicine, his passion was cars. In fact, Dr. Charles Dutton was the most influential automobilist in the Twin Cities. Ooh, automobilist. We need to bring that term automobilist yeah. back. Be uh, like, what do you? What's the? Definition? Hey, man, nice, nice to meet you. What are you into? Golfing, fishing. No, I'm actually an avid automobilist. I'm going to look that up on the in the dictionary it's right just now. Like a, see what the dictionary. It's just an 
automotive enthusiast. Oh, yeah. Automobilist, someone who drives or travels in an automobile. Motorist, driver, the operator of a motor vehicle. It is not a special term. No, it's not. It's just <laughs> it anyone anybody. that drives a car but is an automobilist. At one point, it was very, very interesting. I'm sure. Yes, it was. You know, you were a. Were you a horsist? What would you, what would, you, what would you, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds bad? That sounds dirty for some reason. <laughs> that guy is a horsist. Uh, you, you're he, a horsist. Uh, he got charged with horsist and went to prison for he fifty was, years. He was horsing around. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. Uh, so by 1915, the 53-year-old surgeon held offices in both the Minneapolis chapter and National American Automobile Association. Furthermore, he was the primary driver of either the pace car or the Pathfinder car that set the routes for long-distance races, such as the Minneapolis to Helena race of 1911. Helena, where's that? Georgia. No shit. Which apparently is a whole other history topic I need to dig into. Wow. There was some big long distance overland race that they used to do. Sounds awesome. I know. So Wheeler, feeling that he had found just the right person to assist him, formed a speedway board of directors made up of Twin Cities businessmen with himself as the president. One thing that's cool about the development of this track is I found records of all of these guys' early correspondence. In 1914, Wheeler sent the following letter to Dr. Dutton. Your architect was here yesterday, and I laid out the Speedway plans very carefully to him. I hope your people are going ahead to get things moving, as St. Paul and Minneapolis are the best spots on this earth to build a big Speedway, and we have the right ground. Why, why is it the best place? I think because there is already this interest here. It's yeah. a good-sized city at that time already, and it's all this open land. Nothing's been done here. Why not build it in Detroit? You know, maybe there just wasn't enough interest or something. I don't know. Or open space. Everybody un mis underestimates Minneapolis too. They think it's just this little like puddle in the middle of, yeah, of this. For sure. Like it's it's they just drive by it like it's the water inside of a pothole. It's just like it's <laughs> like it's just nothing. But well, we do have a lot of lakes. We do, but there's like two and a half million people here. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's a decent I mean, it's size. It's no Los Angeles, but it's still no, but it's a metropolis. You know what I like best about Minneapolis? What's that? I mean, I, I I hate the weather here. I truly do. But one of the best things as we about look it, outside and it's dreary yeah, and drizzling. It's, is you have, most cities have a loop around them. Mm -hmm. You get outside that loop and it's like, you're not in the city anymore. Here you mean? Yeah. yeah. It doesn't go on and on and on forever and ever. You don't have to like, I especially go, from where I live, I can go five minutes and be in farm fields yeah. and I can go five minutes and be downtown St. Paul. Yeah, it's pretty cool in that way. And it's still a very urban city. You know, there's a oh, lot of, for sure. there's a lot of automobilists around, not, <laughs> not very many, not many people horsing around. <laughs> that is true. So these men purchased over 340 acres of farmland just west of Fort Snelling and work began in the spring of 1915, just a few months before the planned opening on Labor Day. So this is Some, 1915? Yes. Okay, this is right before World War One. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Some 300,000 cubic yards of earth were moved in grading for the track, with over 1,500 men and horses. Six wooden grandstands with boxes for 75,000 spectators were sent up, wow. along with bleachers for another 25,000 people. How does this compare to the like Daytona or the Indianapolis Speedway? This it's is supposed to be way the, bigger. Yeah, this is way same bigger. Si same size or slightly bigger. Wow. 3.5 million feet of lumber and 30,000 barrels of cement were provided for the track. 
The concrete was laid in a record-breaking 35 days, completing the task on August 26th, just nine days before the big race. In the Uh final days before the race, construction workers toiled through the night, quote, under the light of swinging lanterns. Even so, the grounds were not finished until the morning of the race, and one of the grandstands wasn't completed until two hours into the race. All right, your seats are ready, Yeah, now you can move over here. (laughs) Promoters boasted that the new two-mile concrete oval with its uniform thickness of six inches was a world-class super speedway surpassing even the infamous Indianapolis track. It was designed to permit speeds never before attainable. It was set to be an amazing spectacle. The Minneapolis Tribune proclaimed that, numerically speaking, tomorrow will probably be the greatest day in the history of Minneapolis. The greatest day in the history of Minneapolis, Chris, because they're opening the Speedway. I mean, I was thinking of Avis was the fastest racetrack in the world, yeah. right? it's, which was the which was in Berlin, right? right. It's an extremely fast. Lots of, you know, it's basically two little hairpins and then just these massive, massive, straights. massive straights. Not really built for racing, necessarily. Right. That's true. That's uh, a good that point. But that was in 1921. So that hadn't been around that yet. That had not been. So this not was exist going yet. to be the greatest this track was it. This in was the world. This was the greatest track in the world. Exactly. The Minneapolis Journal headline predicted, quote, million dollar speedway will attract thousands on Saturday. And the next day's paper read, drivers set for auto derby. The journal went on to describe the new speedway. Quote, this two-mile concrete ultra-modern shrine of King Speed, on which in elimination trials the rubber-tired projectiles have hurtled through space at a rate in excess of 100 miles per hour, is a triumph in construction and engineering skill. I like that. I like the King Speed. King yeah. Speed. The Tribune thoughtfully provided unsophisticated Minneapolis speed lovers with instructions on how to pronounce names such as Peugeot. Don't try to pronounce it as spelled, they advised. Puget? Yeah. <laughs> Puget? Yeah, exactly. Say it instead this way. P-E-R-H-O. Where the R comes from, Pear no Hall? man knows. Wait, wait. It was P-E-R, then space. H-O? Parole? Parole? They kind of got it wrong, too. Yeah, I think they did. This reporter did not speak to a French uh, person about this. definitely from Belle Plaine, Minnesota. Uh, and then they went on, where the R comes from, no man knows. But that's the way those elite racing circles say it. And if you try to follow the letters in making the pronunciation, you'll get in bad racing society, and that would be awful. Oh, yes. You yeah, can't would. pronounce it wrong, so yeah. here, pronounce it wrong this way. <laughs> Front row box seats were available for $60 and general admission spots were plentiful at a dollar each. Track officials had talked of many entrants for the qualifying trials and expected to eliminate those not qualifying at at least 84 miles per hour, which was an insane speed Wait, for this how much day. was a ticket? Ticket was a dollar. That's $27 in today's money. That's pretty good. Eight. That's excellent, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there was a gate admission fee as well of $2. I didn't go into the breakdown. Okay, so it's $3. Let me see what that is. Yeah, part of part of the reason you'll find out is- $80. This was expensive. $80? Yes, yes. That's a lot of money in Minnesota. Yeah, it is. This time. Um, but, okay, so did you hear the part about qualifying? Yeah, go say, do that again. Okay, Sorry. so track officials had talked- uh, had talked of all these entrants who are going to qualify right. for the, and they expected so many people to try to enter this race that they said, you know what? Unless you're able to qualify at at least 84 miles an hour, we're not going to let you in. 
which is an insane speed. Well, you're talking about last, you told me it was 70-something miles per hour right. at Indianapolis, 75, 77. Yeah, so they're like, unless you can't go really, really fast, we're not even going to let you Just, in. That's a 10% increase. Right. Mm. But to the great disappointment of everyone, only 14 drivers even attempted to enter. The promoters attempted to make the most of the disappointment and promised a field of famous drivers from around the country and the world. Dario Resta, who had just broken a world record at the new Chicago Speedway, averaging 97 and a half miles per hour, would be competing, driving in the hard-to-pronounce Peugeot. (laughs) (laughs) Ralph De Palma, an Italian driving a Mercedes, was another favored contender, having just won the Indianapolis 500. Gil Anderson and Earl Cooper, both driving American-made Stutzes, were conceded a chance to win, but the Mercedes and Peugeot were given better odds by local gambling houses. So I have a question. Yes. So this is, is there, does NASCAR as an entity exist at this time? I don't know if it does this early on. Let me, I let think me NASCAR was like the 40s. Because it doesn't seem like we're talking about, oh uh, yeah, 1948. So I didn't no. think so. So we don't have like this points-based system where everybody's going. It's like each track kind of has its own. If you win here, you get some money. Yes, exactly. There was a purse. It's not a circuit like type Um, of thing. They call it a circuit because you're just following the racing circuit, but I think it's just, oh, who is having a big event next? It's not a big thing. And it might, they might casually say, well, Bob won three out of the four races. So he's the champion of the year. Right. But it wasn't an official entity, like a sanctioned, there was no sanctioning body as far right. as I understand yeah, yeah. it. Okay. Um, I actually, I do take that back because later I do mention that they tried to do something in some body. But it's just not as official as what Correct, yeah. correct. So the Stutz car company, that's the American car company with the two drivers, obviously wanted to make a good showing in this race, which was viewed by many as a showdown between European and American cars. To that end, the company well, provided- Well, Stutz was from Indianapolis. So that, that, I wonder if there was some sort of rivalry oh, there. Oh, I'm sure there was. You know what I mean? Like, oh, we're going to go to Minnesota and kick the shit out of these guys. Yeah, but there's no with Minnesota their, car company. Fancy racetrack. I know, but it's yeah, still- Yeah, but no, it's more against these European drivers that true, came over. True, that's And their true. Mercedes yeah. and the Peugeot that we can't pronounce. So the company, Stutz, provided an expert pit crew supervised by owner Harry Stutz himself. They're like, you know what? We need to beat these damn Europeans. On the morning of Labor Day, 1915, spectators started to filter in, wandering around the speedway, marveling at the newly built track. The race started at 12 noon, and the first 100 miles was said to be, quote, as magnificent a speed battle as any man could wish to witness. But that's when things started to go bad. Hmm. Organizers noticed that the majority of the stands sat empty. On later count, it was found only 25,000 spectators attended. That's wow. Remember, they built this for for 100,000. Yeah, I thought, wow. And for the majority of the race, competition became absolutely boring. The first issue was the Minneapolis spectators were used to seeing cars skidding sideways, throwing up huge tails of dust and dirt on the one-mile dirt track at the state fair. Because that track was much smaller, the cars seemed to be going faster and made more of a spectacle in the dirt. And even if the cars were faster on concrete, they never did live up to the speed expectations. Drivers complained that the concrete surface, poured in a rush, was so rough at speed that it caused nearly uncontrollable vibrations in their cars and was said to be, quote, almost beyond belief, resulting in numerous mechanical failures. Because of this, the Resta's Peugeot was forced to drop out of the race after just 110 miles. The Mercedes 
succumbed to the same fate soon after. So they just basically rattled themselves apart. Exactly. Because it was clear that one of the two American Stutzes would win, the two drivers both backed off speed considerably in the name of preserving the cars. Yeah, endurance. The excitement did pick back up near the end of the race, however, as the two Stutz drivers went head-to-head then. The winning car crossed the line just 30 feet ahead of the second-place driver with the third-place car 42 miles back. Oh, 42 laps behind? Where, how, how, it's it's a two-mile so 21 track. laps yeah. behind. Wow. The one-two finish was so close that it held a record that stood for 44 years of that close of a finish for the one-two cars. Mm. In all, the 500-mile race took five hours and 47 minutes to run, and the winner's average speed came in at a relatively disappointing 86 miles per hour. How long does the Indianapolis 500 take to run now? I don't think it's very long. Yeah, I'm it's like it two hours. Yeah, I'm going to look it up and see if we can find out. So blah, 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 blah. You keep going. I'll More ominous for the track investors, however, was the press. The Minneapolis Journal reported that the new track, quote, raw, new, and uncompleted with no time to polish it up, was, quote, a disappointment. In addition, financial troubles were immediately evident. The Minneapolis Journal reported that three days after the inaugural race, unpaid about, speedway... Okay. About two and a half to three hours. Yeah. So it's a Not significant five, difference. nearly like six four, hours. Yeah, 40% difference. Yeah. So financial troubles were abound. The Minneapolis Journal reported that uh, Speedway laborers had caused a disturbance at General Manager Sperry's office when he told them to wait until the coming Friday for their wages. Ooh. The journal went on to reveal that the company was more than $300,000 in debt. It still owed money on the land, on grading and construction, for cement, lumber, and advertising, as well as labor. But that only emblazoned the investors to get more races on the docket to raise more funds. It's like 8 or $9 million in today's... Yeah, it's quite a bit. There had been talk immediately after the inaugural race for a 100-mile rematch as thwarted drivers such as De Palma and Resta wanted another chance. So Wheeler told the journal that he was seeking sanction for a 200-mile race for the first available date in October. But the race never happened. The track lay idle, and the winters of 1915 and 1916 were not kind to its defective surface. Frost heaved the concrete, causing it to break up. Despite the obvious problems, it seemed that Wheeler at least held out to the thought that the track would survive. As late as May in 1916, he was counseling Dutton about resurfacing the concrete with a mixture of sand and asphalt. Quote, when the time comes to fix it up, we'll fix it up right. According to one historian, the American Red Cross Auto Derby. That's what we call a bag holder. This guy. Yeah. Yeah, He's he's really just. We'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, According to one historian, the American Red Cross Auto Derby, which was basically a World War I charity event, was run at the Twin City Motor Speedway in 1916 or 17, although there's no mention of improvements to the track at that time. Regardless, by 1917, the Speedway had held its last race. Weeds grew up through the cracked surface, and in the summer, the wooden grandstands were sold off to pay creditors, which... Too bad they didn't sell for today's lumber prices. Otherwise, they probably would have been fine. That would have been all set. (laughs) So it basically came down to bad management, shoddy construction, and unrealistic expectations all contributed to the immediate failure of the Twin Cities Motor Speedway. So how many races were there total? There was the one big race, and then there was one or two races in 16 or 17 that weren't major races. Wow. Yeah. In researching the story, I talked to a curator at the Minnesota Historical Society. He sent me the following letter recounting. 
in researching this story, I actually talked to a curator at the Minnesota Historical Society. Because you were trying to find all kinds of people to talk well, to about there's, this. Well, there's really old just, articles about this, and certainly no one from 1915 is still alive. Right. But even the guys who wrote articles and did a ton of research on this, there was one guy who was actually a physician who kind of tied in and really played up the whole physician tie-in, how doctors were really big proponents of cars. Right. He wrote this amazing article, but he had just passed away too. So oh, everyone I tried to get a hold of, they... There just wasn't anyone around. Yeah. Um, but I did talk to this curator at the Historical Society, and he sent me this letter that he found recounting the following. Quote, in the very early 1920s, when I was between 8 and 10 years old, my cousin and I frequently made walking explorations throughout the Minneapolis area. One time, we ventured further than usual and ran abruptly into a monstrous, monstrous concrete wall. Searching about for an opening, we discovered a crack in the concrete, large enough for us to squeeze through. The inner area seemed to be broad and flat, but rather densely overgrown with small trees. The huge concrete wall, through which we had passed, seemed curved in the shape of an enormous oval with sloping sides around the curves. Not being familiar with the historic facts of Minneapolis, it was not until much later that we learned that we had stumbled into the remnants of the once famous Minneapolis Speedway. So that gives you an idea of just how quickly the, the track in like fell into ruins. It's like five years. It was just done. Done. After sitting idle for several years, the defunct Speedways was acquired by the Twin Cities Aero Corporation, which had been formed to establish a properly equipped local airport. The infield of the track became a landing field. A large wooden hangar was then built in 1920 for airmail service, and the property became known as Speedway Field. At least they kept the name. In 1923, it was renamed World Chamberlain Field in honor of two local pilots killed in combat during World War I. Then in 1928, the old concrete track was broken up and buried so the airfield could expand, and the following year, passenger service was added. As flying activity increased, the west side of the old Speedway straightaway was transformed at the main north-south runway. In 1944, the site was renamed the Minneapolis-St. Paul Metropolitan Airport, with International replacing Metropolitan four years later. Ground was then broken for the current Terminal 1 building in 1958. MSP, as we now know it, is the 12th busiest airport for aircraft operations in the country. Imagine what might have been, though, for a moment. Had the Speedway succeeded as its founders envisioned, surpassing Indianapolis as the greatest racetrack in the country. Or the world. Or the world. And imagine instead of a packed airport with the sound of jets taking off, a packed racetrack with the sound of cars speeding by. It would have made Minneapolis totally different. It would. It would have changed the entire in, the entire face of it. And what's interesting is that um, before 9-11, when you could do whatever you wanted at an airport, basically, you just walk in. Right. And uh, they, they did autocross over there. Oh, on did the they really? They did. They did autocross well, at cool the airport. that's a homage. I bet no one yeah. knew that it used to be a speedway. They probably didn't, but that was, it was neat. It was really, really cool, but you can't do anything like that anymore. Just in case you have a rocket launcher in the back of your Miata. <laughs> <laughs> well, well maybe you're just trying to go really fast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, Elon. <laughs> uh, yes. I just think it's cool, though, that where the front straight was is now the main north-south runway at MSP. In a way, it's still there. Yeah. In a Obviously, way, they crumbled it all down and yeah. repaved it, but that is the exact location when you're landing on the primary runway. It just that was the front straight. It goes back to the whole uh, ship of Theseus thing, right? You know, it's like, is this the same runway? Is it always replaced? No, is it it's the not. Same? It's not. But it kind you of can is. envision as you take off, you're speeding down the front straight. I'm gonna close my eyes and 
do some steering wheel motions yeah. next time. Everyone I take off from sitting MSD. next to you is like, what's going on? <laughs> what is I don't like doing? this character. Marshall! <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys, that's, that's all we it. got for you. I think on uh, Friday, Friday we'll see you again. Absolutely. And I'm actually going to be, when is the Ruchelos rally? We're, that's we're coming up. up. We're coming up on that. So I'll be out on that. So if you're a listener and you're going to be out on the East Coast, come say hi to me. I'd really enjoy meeting you. Until then, we will see you later. Take care.